are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is about the tabernacle. Hello my radio friends, welcome to the program today and thank you for tuning in. The Americans have a different greeting than we Aussies have. We say, how are you going? The Americans say, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. Some time ago, I mentioned we may possibly consider some aspects of the tabernacle or temple services as per God's instructions to the Israelites and try to understand what it's all about. That's our program for today. In our lives, we are surrounded by symbols. That's the S-Y-M-B-O-L-S. For example, you see a door with a little figure of a man or a lady, and the symbol means that there's a toilet behind the door. You see an oval-shaped badge with a group of stars on it. And you know the car is a Subaru. The stars are a representation of the constellation of Pleiades, which in Japanese is translated as Subaru. You see a sign with a silhouette of a kangaroo. And you know you need to be on the lookout for kangaroos. You see a cardboard carton with a silhouette of a partly filled wine glass. And you know that box must not be tipped over. Symbols are used to convey information. They are a form of language and they are seen everywhere. Even a clock is a symbol. Hands point at numbers and you have information which tells you what time of the day or night it is. The tabernacle or the temple structure, furniture and services were all symbolic and were given so that people could understand about God and about how the sin problem was to be dealt with. This is a big topic and we will only be able to deal with the basics in this one program. However, it's a fascinating topic. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, God is speaking to Moses, and he said, Let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. This was not so long after God spoke the Ten Commandments and also wrote them in stone at Mount Sinai. Up until then, God's presence was mainly evident by a pillar of cloud that led the Israelites during the day and a pillar of fire that hovered over the place where they were camped at night. 
But God desired to be among his people and gave instructions that a sanctuary, a kind of portable church, if you like, was to be built and furnished. He revealed all the plans, the sizes, the materials to be used, and all the details to Moses, who was the leader of the Israelites at that time. Where did all the materials come from, you might ask? It appears that most of the precious stones and precious metals were given to the Israelites by the Egyptians. After the ten plagues which affected Egypt so severely, the Egyptians gave these gifts as a kind of please get out of here payoff. There were trees to be found in the desert areas where the people spent their first 40 years of freedom. Goats and other animals would have supplied wool and hair and so on. It was God who gave specific instructions regarding materials to be used, dimensions and placement of everything in the sanctuary. Later, in the time of King Solomon, and later again after the Jews' captivity in Babylon, and even just before the time of Christ, solid masonry buildings were constructed. These were called temples, but the proportions and furnishings were the same as in the portable sanctuary. The first item to be made was the Ark of the Covenant, a kind of box or a chest to house the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. The ark was made of acacia wood. It was just over a metre long and about 750 millimetres wide and high. It was overlaid with gold. There was a gold cover called the mercy seat, and at each end were gold cherubim, or angels, with their wings spread upward and over the mercy seat. The layout of the tabernacle precinct was in the dimensions of two to one. The surrounding wall was approximately 50 metres long and 25 metres wide. It faced in an east-west direction. Near the far end of the enclosure was a building consisting of two rooms. The total length was about 15 metres and it was 5 metres wide. The first room was called the Holy Place and the second room was called the Most Holy Place. The rooms were separated by a very, very thick curtain made of blue, purple and scarlet yarn. The Ark of the Covenant was the only item of furniture in the most holy place, and the only person to enter this room was the high priest, and then only once a year. Inside the first room, which was twice as big as the other room, were three pieces of furniture. On the left side was a seven-branched candlestick, sometimes referred to as the lampstand. It was big, stood on the floor, and was made out of gold. On the right-hand side was a table made of acacia wood, 
and overlaid with gold. It was called the table of showbread, and on it was placed twelve flat loaves of bread, called the bread of God's presence. This bread was not eaten. It was a symbol of God's presence and provision for the needs of the people. At the far end, near the curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place, was the altar of incense. It was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The high priest was to burn incense on it each evening and morning. The only people to enter the holy place were the priests. Outside, in the courtyard, were two items of furniture. If someone entered the courtyard from the entranceway, and there was only one, the first thing they would come across would be the altar of burnt offering, sometimes called the altar of sacrifice. It was two and a half metres long and wide, and one and a half metres high. It was made of acacia wood and bronze. It was here that animal sacrifices were offered. Closer to the most holy place was a large bronze basin filled with water. It was called the basin or sometimes the laver. The priests were required to wash their hands and feet before entering the holy place. So now we have an idea of the layout of the tabernacle and all the main items to be used in the ceremonies. The next thing is to find out what the ceremonies were and then what they meant. You may be surprised to learn that the whole sanctuary and or temple with its furniture and its services were all symbolic of something which was reality. That reality was that Jesus Christ is the means by which we are made right with God. Some of the special services, such as the Day of Atonement service, pointed to a future time when God would clear the universe of all sin and all sinners. Do you remember the reason God gave for the building of the tabernacle? It was that I may dwell among them. You see, God wants a close and personal relationship with each and every person, not just the Israelites of old, but you and me as well. In the tabernacle, God's presence was, interestingly enough, in the most holy place over the Ark of the Covenant. It was here that the glorious light of God's presence emanated. It was known as the Shekinah glory. From the outside it probably appeared as a kind of a bright glow signifying the presence of the Lord. One of the most significant ceremonies was what would happen when somebody had deliberately sinned and the knowledge that he had done wrong was worrying him. If he wanted to be forgiven, there was a particular procedure to follow. This particular ceremony 
was called the guilt offering. Firstly, the person, the sinner, had to go to his flock, and that would be of sheep, although there were some exceptions, and pick out a lamb or a young ram and take it to the entrance to the sanctuary. The young ram or lamb had to have no defects. It had to be healthy and with nothing wrong with it. If it was maimed or damaged in any way, it was not acceptable. At the entrance to the courtyard, he would meet a priest who would escort him and the young male sheep, both of them, into the courtyard. The priest would then require the guilty person to lay his hand on the lamb's head. This was done to signify the transference of the sin or the sins to the lamb. Then the sinner would be required to cut the lamb's throat, and some of the blood spurting out would be caught in a container by the attending priest. Meanwhile, the sinner would watch his precious lamb die in front of his eyes. The priest would then sprinkle some drops of blood from the container onto the raised corners, often called horns, of the altar of burnt offering. Then the now-dead lamb would be burnt on the fire on the altar. It all sounds quite gruesome, doesn't it? And it was. You can read about it yourself in the book of Leviticus in chapter 5. But it was God who instituted this ceremony because he wanted to get through to human beings about the evil of sin, the holiness of God and the extreme cost of forgiveness. We're going to stop here, but we'll go on straight afterwards.
just before the break, I mentioned what had to be done as part of the sacrifice for sin. And it was certainly would be a heart-wrenching thing. The lamb was required to be a perfect one, not some maimed and ugly old beaten-up ram on its last legs. For someone like those Israelite nomads, who would probably have had only a few animals at best, to sacrifice a prime lamb would be hard to do. It would cost them dearly. It would be a real sacrifice. And then for the sinner to actually cut the lamb's throat himself must have been even harder because his forgiveness depended on the life and spilt blood of his own animal, his substitute. With this done, the sinner could leave the sanctuary precinct confident that his sin was forgiven. It had cost him something, and it cost the lamb its life. The shed blood meant freedom, freedom from that sin and freedom from the guilt. To have to go through all this in order to obtain forgiveness would make someone think pretty hard about wanting to sin again at some future time. The sacrificial system was an educational service adapted to the understanding of the people at that time and was designed to help them develop right concepts concerning the holiness of God, the heinous character of sin and how they might approach God and be reconciled to him. You see, sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. A sinner, that is one who commits sin, must forfeit his life as a result of committing that sin. There's no way around it, unless a substitute pays the penalty for us. Now we know it was Jesus who paid that penalty for us, but that back then when the sacrificial system was instituted, they did not really understand about Jesus, who, as you probably know, took our blame and the death penalty for our sins. It was he whose blood and life drained from his body. It was he who died for us, and he only needed to do it once. Hebrews 7 verse 27 makes that clear, where it says, Unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Fortunately, it does not end there. Although Jesus gave his life as our substitute, he took up his life again and is now our High Priest in Heaven. At the beginning of this talk, I spoke about symbols, those logos, pictures or ceremonies which point to the real thing. The male lamb, as you've probably guessed, represents Jesus. 
In the book of John, chapter 1 and verse 29, is recorded when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized. The verse says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Isaiah 53, 7, it speaks about Jesus being led to the slaughter like a lamb. And although there are many New Testament references to Jesus as a lamb, I'd like to share with you this one. It's from 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It says, Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The old temple service regarding forgiveness of sins was a symbol referring to Jesus and how he made it possible for our sins to be forgiven by taking our punishment. Perhaps in a future program we'll look at what happened on the Day of Atonement. It's a fascinating study. But there are other symbols with significant meaning in the tabernacle. In the holy place there was the seven-branched candlestick made of pure gold. This too represents Jesus, the light of the world. In John 8 verse 12, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in the same book, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, John, writing about Jesus, says, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. That candlestick had seven branches. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. That means that Christ's followers are also lights to help those in sin find the way of salvation. But the symbolism doesn't stop there. Remember the table of showbread placed on the right-hand side of the most, sorry, of the holy place? This too was a symbol pointing forward to Jesus. In John 6.35, Jesus announces, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never go thirsty. That does not mean we'll never experience physical hunger or thirst. It has a spiritual meaning that in Christ our hunger for forgiveness, for freedom from guilt, and to know the meaning of our existence, will be satisfied. There was an epitaph on a gravestone I once read about. It said, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up, but with nowhere to go. Is your life aimless? Are you wondering what's it all about? Are you sick of sin? Or do you feel stuck in a rut, unsatisfied and unfulfilled?
just as the old tabernacle services pointed to Jesus, I want to point you to Jesus too. He doesn't demand some heroic act of yours. He's done all the hard work. All it requires of you is to tell him something like this, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. Please forgive me. Please come into my life and make me what you want me to be. And please, Lord, change in me what I cannot change for myself. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Well, that's it for today, folks. Thank you for being with me today. Until next week, this is Len signing off and wishing that the deep longings of your heart might be fulfilled.